We are back, and our guest is uh, Bob Ney. We're going to have our weekly chat about all things Washington, D.C., and politics in the world. Bob, welcome, as always. Oh, thank you, Kevin. How are you? Oh, I'm I'm well. Uh, I wish we had three or four hours to, to, to mm, go I through know. all of this. But why don't we start with uh, President Biden taking a decidedly more aggressive turn towards Israel's conduct of the war in Gaza? Well, he has, and he and, and this is a fast switch, and it happened rather sudden. And then the issue, uh, what they're saying is uh, President Biden actually yesterday is saying that Israel's military campaign in Gaza has been, quote, over the top. And, of course, this is a shark, uh, a very sharp rebuke of uh, of Netanyahu and, and Israel itself. But it's a generic rebuke, and it's not just, well, they haven't done this, they haven't done that. It's just, it's, quote, over the top. And, it, and it's a stark, quick change, because, frankly, Biden has been down the line no matter how Netanyahu has answered him, which has been no every single time to everything. Uh, I, and I believe that the pressure that the president is getting is enormous. And he has just decided to take you know, this type of uh, position as, I think, a warning to Netanyahu that there's some things that have probably got they've got to change. And and uh, some of that pressure comes from uh, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, who said just yesterday, I will not vote for one more nickel for the right wing Netanyahu government as long as this stuff continues to happen. Yes. And Senator Sanders was um, the, one of the first people in the national system, I'll call it, you know, House and Senate uh, to come out. And he said, I'm Jewish. And in doing that, he was able to put aside criticism of somebody being, you know, anti-Jewish uh, by saying that himself. And then that allowed Senator Sanders to focus the issue on humanitarian aid and the Palestinians receiving that humanitarian aid. So he he really changed the dynamic a few weeks ago. Now, the other really important thing, I think, is the fact that the president has twice bypassed Congress to give Israel money. And I don't think now, obviously, after Biden's statement Thursday, he would be willing to bypass Congress again. And Senator Sanders and some other members have sort of laid this gauntlet down. Now, I do want to mention, Kevin, though, the president did invoke a clause and so he might spare everybody a little bit of, of uh, anguish on this, but he did invoke a clause where humanitarian principles have to be followed in order to receive money. So we'll have to see how that plays out. He did that, I believe, yesterday also. And, Bob, I have not seen the Tucker Carlson interview with uh, Russian leader Vladimir Putin, uh, but it is aired on the former Fox News journalist website. Uh, on Thursday evening. It lasted more than two hours. Putin went on a 30-minute uh, uh, you know, monologue himself. Uh, I, as I said, I have not seen it, but um, there's a lot there to go through. Well, I think there is, and I, and I, I haven't watched it. I've seen you know, pieces uh, of it and some analysis you know, basically of it. Now, 
the media focused in about, uh, you know, obviously the reporter who's been uh, been jailed, even um, uh, Gershowitz. And they focused in on that because Tucker Carlson did say, you know, can I take him back to the United States with me? And Putin opened some doors there on that issue. So that was highlighted and focused. But a lot of it's going to also be involved with uh, steering the interview towards, you know, the current affair, of course, the Ukraine, and uh, where Putin Putin is standing on that. Also, uh, Putin does speak about China and kind of relates that towards the U.S. and the United States dollar that it's under, you know, a type of threat. But, uh, you know, I I think it was okay for, frankly, personally, for um, Tucker Carlson to do the interview. I know he got a lot of heat, and some of the national media gave heat on it. But, again, they tried to get interviews with Putin, and they couldn't get them. I'm sure any major national media outlet that could have got an interview would have. And, Bob, also the – let me see if I can do this intro properly, but a special counsel, uh, a Republican, uh, Robert Hur, was appointed by Merrick Garland, the attorney general, a Democrat, to appointed by Biden to look into Biden's mishandling or mishandling of classified documents. And he wrote he, he said that in it that criminal charges uh, would not be are not warranted. However, he spent a lot of time talking about the president's uh, lack of memory, his inability to remember certain dates, including the death of his own son. This is now a classic Washington story. Republicans are jumping on it. Democrats are defending him. Uh, I guess my question to you is, is this going to go away in 24 hours like a lot of Washington stories, or is it uh, – really damaging to the president. This story is bad in every way humanly possible. Uh, any way anybody tries to spin this, it's bad. And I also watched a, a surrogate for the president on one of the national shows uh, a few hours ago. And basically, she would have done the president a favor had she stayed off of television. They're gearing towards the fact that this was right after the Israel-Hamas uh, you know, tragedy that happened when Hamas attacked Israel. And for that reason, they're insinuating that the president wasn't his you know, sharpest ability. The president himself mentioned that. Um, there's one other thing I thought about, and I haven't read this anywhere, but it's just a thought in my mind. The person personally that has sat down with the United States government and lawyers in my lifetime uh, the whole key to the government and special prosecutors, frankly, is with anyone is pretty clear. They will ask you multiple statements, and if they feel you are lying to them, they will then present a charge of obstruction of justice versus the original potential crime that they were looking at. I just want to point that out because that's a method of operation of any of the prosecutors, you know, in any level. And with this one, if, you know, if they didn't say that the defense of Biden was an 81-year-old person whose memory is failing and has failed on key points, then their only other conclusion could be that he's lying. So either way this thing went, 
was not you know particularly healthy for the president and also the fact of uh following this back up the president and whoever came up with this idea it was not a good one then in the midst of all of this goes into this i guess you'd call it hastily called press conference where he then uh you know becomes angry and uh which leads to other speculation of uh you know a, a potential cognitive problem and he displays anger over it and then he says you know that basically why were they asking him about his son but there are key points you know where was i when kennedy was assassinated you know uh the passing of my mother and father and certain key points people have a usual kick in of their memory you know because it's something traumatic obviously like the loss of the son so the fact that he didn't know within a couple of years that issue but also he couldn't recall was trying to recall when he was vice president of the United States so yeah this is a problem and his follow up was a it's a real problem how they had him follow up on it so i don't think this is a uh i don't think this is just a one time flash in the pan and the media is going to look to every single time the president has other problems and then here was the kicker of all of this after everything he said you know i'm not an old guy that's got a bad memory he turns around within a couple of minutes and talks about the president of mexico uh you know opening the gates in what was obviously egypt so you know that in itself surely did not help the cause there's one other thing i did want to mention too if i could kevin and that is this putting aside what is the law on donald trump in classified documents the fact that you have a special prosecutor who says the president did not keep these um, documents, which were highly classified in a, you know, in a very safe place. And number two, he willfully held these and talked about having them. The president did with a ghostwriter. Again, no matter what Trump's legal position on classified documents in the court of public opinion, for the most part, Donald Trump is probably going to be viewed as not or should not have been charged for what he's been charged with on the documents in the court of public opinion. Well, as I like to say, this is only going to get crazier. Uh, Bob yes. May, as always, thanks for coming on every Friday. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you. We are back. And we're going to do something that's a lot of fun. We always uh, visit with a seven days reporter, and usually it's about hydro dams and politics at the state house. But today, we're talking to food writer Jordan Barry about her article uh, about let's see, what is it like to be the partner of a seven days food writer? Jordan Barry, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so I can hear the smile on your face, and I've got one on mine. Um, your article <laughs> begins 
with uh, a sticky steering wheel from Korean uh, chicken. Uh, take, start us off. Yeah, it wasn't my steering wheel this time, to, to be honest. But uh, my colleague Melissa Passman and I decided for our love and marriage issue this week to sit down with our husbands and put them in the hot seat um, about what it's like to get in the car and find out the steering wheel is sticky and know that it's just an occupational hazard of their wife's job. Um, Melissa was writing about uh, chicken wings and wanted to eat them while they were piping hot um, and happened to get quite a bit of sticky soy chicken wing sauce all over the steering wheel um, in that case. So Mark knew right away, to to his credit, (laughs) that that must have been what had happened. So, uh, so... I, I don't know where to start, but your husband, Kevin, uh, as you write, is the uh, food scraps in the car culprit more often than I am. But he has different pet peeves about my job. Uh, you write yeah. that you write that when people when restaurant owners discover that you are actually in the restaurant, suddenly the service magically improves. And you quote yeah. you, and and when you get recognized, you know, good service becomes great service. And you quote your husband as saying, I hate it. Tell us about that. <laughs> he, really, he really does. And so many food critics in larger cities will put on elaborate uh, disguises or, you know, they're trying to be stealth. And there's photos of them kind of taped behind the, the host stands for the service people to try to figure out who they are. But it's small here. We're in Vermont. Folks know who we are and whether or not we're writing about a place. Occasionally we will be recognized. And um, uh, when it happens, yeah, it's. I always expect the service to be good because we've got such great restaurants here in the state. But occasionally it just gets a little more hands-on. You know, your waters get filled more often. Your, your table crumbs will get wiped away. Uh, they'll ask if you want an extra snack, something like that. Um, and yeah, he, I think my husband, Kevin would prefer to be under the radar that, that over the top service, uh, makes him a little nervous. He doesn't like being watched, I think. (laughs) But it's, but it's a pretty good gig because, uh, you know, to, to, to get away from conflicts of interest and all that stuff, seven days pays for your meal and pays for the meal of your plus one. So he gets a pretty good deal out of the process. Absolutely. And, you know, going out to dinner, it's, it's a romantic thing to do. And folks go out for date nights so often. It just happens to be that usually for us, it's my work. <laughs> and that was one of the funny things that uh, both Mark and Kevin were talking about is the difference between, you know, when we're on the clock, Melissa and I, versus uh, what we've come to call a recreational meal. Um, and, you know, it can it can be the same. You eat the same things. We always try to order a variety of dishes and try the whole menu kind of thing. And they're both well-trained in that regard. But, you know, if we're on the job and testing a place out and trying to figure out what we're going to write about it, um, if it's not quite living up to expectations, this is something that Mark said, uh, it can really change the vibe of the night. And Melissa will get, you know, not mad or upset, but just, you know, trying to figure out uh, how to spin the story to, you know, be fair to the place. But uh, we never like doing a takedown piece, so we can get a little grumpy if things aren't going as well as we hoped they would. Okay, so tell us, what, how, do you, how do you deal with this? Do you, when you walk into a restaurant, do you walk in first? Does he hang back? Uh, how, does he keep his mouth shut? 
Does he whisper things, uh, you know, to you when the waiter, when the server is, is not there? How does it work mechanically? <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, I'll, I'll make the reservation sometimes in his name to try to help be a little stealthy, which is uh, it's <laughs> a sneaky way of doing it. But, uh, yeah, we'll go in together. And, and these days we've got a, a seven-month-old, so we tend to dine right when things open <laughs> if we've got him along. Um, and Kevin ends up being a baby wrangler more than other his usual job these days. Um, but yeah, we'll sit down and he knows that, you know, from a narrative standpoint, you're never allowed to order the same thing that I get. And you got to have everything as, as much as you can, as much as the scope of the menu. Um, so, uh, I'm, Melissa and I both do the same thing where we, we will order last and we'll let the folks we're dining with decide what they'd like to have. We're not telling him what to eat, but in most cases, uh, my husband, Kevin, he said, had a funny quote in the story that he'll play the role of the everyman. Um, and that usually means a burger uh, or a pepperoni pizza if we're at a wood-fired pizza joint. You know, the kind of the staples, the classics. Um, but we, we share everything. And he'll, he'll occasionally say, you know, could you use a little, little more salt? Or <laughs> uh, I wish the, you know, the sauce on the burger were a little different. Uh, He's not a mayo guy, so if there's an aioli, it can be a hard sell. But otherwise, very adventurous, and, and we'll eat kind of whatever I put in front of him uh, based on ordering what's on the menu. So, uh, and so you don't argue about uh, these things. You have it sort of worked out ahead of time, so you're you're not having conflict in front of the entire restaurant. Yeah, especially for being watched. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, we we'll do it on the spot, but it's um, because I I like to eat everything and there's nothing I don't you could put in front of me that I wouldn't want so if uh, he's really strongly feeling that he wants to order a particular item uh, I'll let him get it and just tax him a bite or two <laughs> so uh, now you having to take pictures of all this stuff and he uh, he serves as a kind of an aid when it comes to uh, taking photographs for for the newspaper and the website yeah, absolutely. Um, he happens to work in multimedia and be a, a photographer as a hobby, so it's very helpful um, to get his eye, and he's taught me a lot over the years. But the it's so funny when people take photos of food. It's such a meme, right? Like, oh, don't eat till the camera does uh, or till the phone does and, you know, photos on Instagram and all that. And I always feel a little self-conscious about it, and it's definitely one of the things that tips folks off to the fact that I'm there in the restaurant eating and working if I'm you know, whipping out a camera to take photos of every dish. Um, but it's it's helpful to do, even if we send a photographer later for a story, even just for our notes to remember, what did that plate look like? Or what was that ingredient? Um, so both Melissa and I are always snapping photos and, and we, we roll our own eyes at, at doing it, I would say. But um, it's a big help. And uh, yeah, Kevin's skill in that regard He's taught me a lot about how to frame photos and uh, knows that if we can choose a table, we should sit by a window so we've got better light. Tell us, if you would, um, how many times do you go out to eat every week? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we Most of our coverage in the seven days food section is somewhat restaurant related. So it's a lot of dining out and it varies week to week, but usually once, once a week or so, uh, not always for dinner. And both Kevin and Mark said that they prefer going out to lunch, which I was surprised by. Um, but I think it's kind of a more 
you know, the daytime it's a little more lingering. You're not dealing with the the high pressure dinner situation in a busy restaurant or um, trying to, you know, worry about driving home from whatever part of the state we're in uh, late at night in whatever weather Vermont throws at you in February. Um, well, so. well, I'm I'm a I'm a hen of the wood guy. Uh, I just love coming up from Montpelier to, to spend a, a leisurely time. I especially love sitting bar at Hen of the Wood all by myself and uh, just take advantage of the great service and the Parker House rolls. But do you have a, a, a favorite new restaurant uh, that might be under the radar that you might recommend to us, or is that forbidden by your seven days policy? Well, I pretty much write uh, whatever I'm feeling these days in the paper. I don't hold a lot off from that. I, the funny thing is, you know, whether I get the chance to go back to places after I've written about them. And I almost find that that's a more interesting answer than uh, than where I'm, where's new and hot. Um, and the staples for me are, um, I love May Day in Burlington. I just love what they do. And uh, you, you mentioned the great service sitting at the bar at Head of the Wood. And I love to go sit there, you know, at the bar by myself as well. Um, and that's usually a recreational meal uh, for sure. Um, and then I live in Virgin's and where we went and uh, grilled Kevin and Mark recently was Virgin's Laundry, which is our little bakery here in town. Um, and they've got so much more than bread and treats these days. And the, the Turkish eggs there is is a meal that I haven't quite figured out how to write about. It's been around for a while, but I eat it almost every week. It's, it's incredible. And can you, in the minute or so we have left, can you fill us in on the latest uh, in the, that in the 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 hole that's been left by Penne Clouse, my favorite breakfast place? What's going on there? Absolutely, there's a, a new restaurant coming in this spring from uh, a few head of the wood alum, actually. Uh, that will be kind of a farm-to-table spot. Uh, Frankie's is the name. And Penny Clue's fans will be happy to know that uh, Charles Reeves, the former owner, co-owner of that space, is going to be launching brunch at Deep City in Burlington, the, the restaurant attached to Foam Brewers down by the water. So he said it won't be Penny Clue's, but I think that uh, certain certain elements like the green gravy and other favorites might show up on the menu. God, these restaurant people, you know, they retire saying they're exhausted and then they turn up, you know, uh, six months later, they just can't help themselves. And I suspect it's the same with food writers. You know, I think so. Even even when I'm off the clock, I take notes and, and take photos to, to look for the story. So I get where they're coming from. Well, Jordan Barry, uh, we love your article and we really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you can you can get uh, Jordan's story about about her husband uh, and how he puts up with her habit of going to restaurants at sevendaysvt.com. You can also get it for free uh, on the street, pretty much in any community in Vermont, right out of the box on the street. Jordan Barry, thanks for having us. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Okay, read her story at Seven Days VT. It's great. back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. And we're going to shift gears here and we're going to talk about outdoor recreation. Vermont Outdoor Recreation Day is coming up and it's February 16th at the Vermont State House. The day is hosted by the Vermont Trails and Greenways Council. 
the Vermont Ski Areas Association, and Vermont Outdoor Business Alliance. It'll bring together all the trail organizations, land management experts from all around the state uh, to talk about and promote the outdoor recreation industry in in the the state uh, to advocate for investment and climate adaptation, flood recovery, a comprehensive economic impact study, outdoor recreation. Uh, And to talk about all that, we're joined by two uh, experts in the field who will be there. One is Lisa Lynn. She's a board member of the Vermont, Vermont Outdoor Business Alliance and co-publisher of Vermont Sports and Vermont Ski and Ride magazine. And Nick Bennett, or Bennett, because there's an E at the end, has been executive director of the Vermont Mountain Bike Association since 2021 and co-chairs the Vermont Trails and Greenways Council. Welcome to you both. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for having us. Okay, so uh, we'll get to Vermont Outdoor Recreation Day, but I want to ask, you know, part of what's going on here is beer. I recently, last year, rode the the Lamoille Valley Rail Trail, and one of the highlights of riding that trail is to pull over, park your bike and go into that barbecue place. God, I think it's outside Morrisville somewhere. And I just thought to myself at that moment, uh, what could possibly be better if you're a visitor to Vermont or a resident of Vermont than doing this great ride on this fabulous trail and pulling over for a beer and a barbecue and then getting back on your bike. Can you guys start there by talking about the integration of all those things together. Now, why don't we start with Lisa? I'll jump in. And I think the Memorial Valley Rail Trail is an excellent example of how just simply putting a trail connecting these rural towns can help economic development. For instance, there's Memorial Valley Rail Tours, which is a bike shop that really sprang up to cater to rail trail visitors. It's got electric bikes. It does Um, shuttles back and forth, and I think we're going to see a lot more of that. There are a number of uh, Airbnbs that have sprung up, including sort of like an Airbnb um, camps all along the trail. And even though the trail was just open this past year, we're already seeing businesses really thinking about what can they do to enhance the trail experience and help, you know, build up some economic activity in these fairly rural areas. And, and Nick, I wonder if you could talk about, I mean, I, I can't think of an organization that must be growing faster than the Vermont Mountain Bike Association. I know I've got lots of friends in it, and I live in East Montpelier, which is just on fire with trails everywhere, and obviously everybody knows about uh, the trails up in Burke, but I mean, these trails are everywhere, and it's bringing people from all over the world. Why don't you talk to us about that? Sure. And and your comment about the LVRT is great. I'm sitting in our Waterbury office here looking out at several of the local establishments. We've got Pro Pig, we have the Reservoir, we've got Blackback Pub, and they're all a short pedal from Perry Hill, which is one of the state's seminal mountain bike networks over here, um, you know, just down the street. So another perfect example of that coupling of outdoor recreation, community, local business. It's one of the reasons that I think a lot of people come to Vermont to visit and, and want to call um, Vermont home, but you're, you're also to, you're right in terms of mountain biking being one of the bellwethers of the growth of outdoor recreation in the state. We've seen 
the number of members of our organization double over the last five years. And, and that's still a drop in the bucket. You know, we're at almost 10,000 individual members right now, which is pretty significant in a state whose population is you know, hovering around 650,000. We, we did some work with UVM and estimated, though, just Vermonters alone, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50,000 Vermonters are out riding mountain bikes at least once a week on the trails in the summer. So it's definitely an example of the, the recreation, how that's become culturally embedded in the lives and, and livelihoods of, of Vermonters. But, you know, that applies to all the different forms of recreation. One of the reasons that I'm really proud to be the co-chair of the Trails and Greenways Council, we represent winter, summer, motorized, non-motorized um, and it's really a smorgasbord of, of outdoor recreation opportunity here in Vermont. And, uh, and, and I want to stay with you just for one question about um, there. There, it, it's sometimes. Do you worry at all that the mountain bike piece of this gets so popular that we get crowded on the trails, and you know, you you know, people start yelling at each other, and it <laughs> leads to conflict? Or, or have you have you got this thing pretty much figured out? Well, I think I think it's somewhere between. I would never want to say we've got everything figured out, but we've, you know, and it's actually going to dovetail into some of what we'll talk about later in terms of where we think the time is right for smart investment in outdoor recreation in terms of an economic impact study, some of the tools we need for, for planning. But, you know, we even, I think you mentioned the Northeast Kingdom up in East Burke earlier. They were an early, early on, they figured out the need to invest heavily in, in community engagement and developing really smart planning tools, understanding traffic patterns, and thinking about even even a campaign that led to uh, a campaign called Ride with Gratitude, which is an educational piece that's now spread across really the Northeast where we work to educate individuals about how to really practice good etiquette when they're out on the, on the trails. But it does come really, the root of it comes back to good planning and being prepared. Uh, and and at, you mentioned earlier, there are, sometimes it can seem like trails are everywhere. And that's actually one of the things we really don't don't want. We don't want them to be everywhere sort of without really thoughtful placing of where do trails make a lot of sense? Where do they connect communities? Where do they access important resources? And where can we create areas that are also open and, and trailless too? So, and that actually is part of the investments that um, are foreseen by some of the work we're doing in the legislature now. So I think you're totally right to point a, to point that's kind of, I wouldn't say it's a concern. It's something we're mindful of. And we really want, we, know, we believe now, especially layering in things like climate change, now is the right time to invest in the future of outdoor recreation in Vermont. Lisa Lynn, it's uh, February 16th. It's Outdoor Recreation Day, it's, and that's uh, you're going to all be at the State House. Tell us what your agenda is. So I think I think one of the things that we really want to do is raise awareness of the importance of the outdoor recreation sector. So just to pull back in a big picture, we think of things like the tech sector as being like a hot economic driver. However, if you look at outdoor recreation nationwide, it's growing 2.0 times faster than the rest of the economy. In Vermont alone, it makes up 4.6% of Vermont's economy. It's a second state behind Hawaii in terms of contributions to a state's gross domestic product. And then if you look at, you know, who is outdoor recreation bringing to our state, we get nearly 4 million skier rider visits a year. That puts us in third place behind um, Colorado and California. And, you know, I always like to say as, you know, the editor of Vermont Sports and Ski and Ride that Vermont is sort of like the central park of New England. It's where everybody goes. So I think number one, we want to really emphasize that investing in outdoor recreation makes sense from, a, you know, from our statewide economy. 
We're also looking at the Vermont Outdoor Business Alliance. We're made up of 135 businesses that really depend on outdoor recreation. And these include, you know, large manufacturers such as Darn Tough, Burton, Orvis, outdoor retailers like Outdoor Gear Exchange, Onion River Sports, West Hill Shop, and the Mountain Goat. But we're also seeing emerging businesses like Bevo or Hootie Hoo. So we really believe that investing in outdoor recreation is not just smart for the lifestyle, which is obviously a huge benefit for Vermont, but it's also just smart economic policy. And uh, and it's also not how do I put this? Um, it's it's not heavy industry. It's not polluting. Um, could you talk it's, about that a little bit, Lisa? It's, it's just, I mean, it's just the opposite of that. I mean, here you have something that, in general, does not. You know, I, I worked as the commissioner of economic development for several years under the Shumlin administration. It's really tough to get manufacturers to move to Vermont. There are any number of reasons why. Yet outdoor recreation businesses, although some of them are in manufacturing, are promoting a healthy lifestyle. They're helping preserve many of the um, public lands and state lands you know, that are forested. They're contributing to both the health of the economy, the health of individuals, and frankly, the health of the forest and our climate. Nick, uh, what are my, my guests, by the way, just as a reminder, uh, it's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, and my guest, Lisa Lynn and Nick Bennett from the uh, Outdoor Vermont Outdoor Business Alliance. Uh, Outdoor uh, Recreation Day is coming up on February 16th. Nick, when you talk about public investment in outdoor recreation, what exactly are you talking about? If you if you're sitting down with the Senate Appropriations Committee or the Senate Finance Committee, what exactly are you asking for? That, yeah, it's a great question. So I'll, I'll start by level setting. In Vermont here, we have quite a unique landscape. Over 70% of the public access trails in Vermont are graciously hosted by private landowners. So that's the first point we often bring up, that so much of our recreation economy really sits on the shoulders of landowners who agree to open their property to, to recreation as part of the Vermont culture that's so critical. The investment we're asking for now, which we think is not only a modest one, but is an incredibly smart one, is a comprehensive uh, outdoor uh, recreation impact study that'll look at really how Lisa already mentioned those important numbers about that 4.6 of Vermont percent of Vermont's GDP, close to $2 billion of, of impact, understanding really how that works, the drivers, how that is distributed across public and private land, smart investments, and as much as it's a study, it's really designed to create recommendations for where do we need to put that public investment? Where do we need to invest in stewardship and maintenance? How do we need to upgrade uh, really key components of that infrastructure for climate change? And we saw this past summer with the historic flooding, which unfortunately is likely to not be something we, we don't see, you know, routinely in the future. We might see, we, we should expect to see that, um, you know, not every 100 years, but perhaps a lot, a lot more frequently, thinking about how do we invest in our infrastructure and in the organizations that help maintain our trails from the Vermont Mountain Bike Association to the Green Mountain Club to the Catamount Trail Association to, you know, you name it. How are we making those smart investments to ensure that our outdoor recreation can not only, our economy not only retains that foothold it has, but grows um, at that rate that Lisa alluded to earlier and continues to, to provide that prosperity for Vermonters? I wonder, Lisa, if I could start with you again and talk about, to both of you, about climate change. Um, it is a major reason, in my view, why 
Vermont is an attractive place for people to come to live uh, and raise a family and also get on their bike or get on their skis or boards. Uh, how do you think about climate change, Lisa, vis-a-vis outdoor recreation? I think we have opportunities. We obviously clearly have challenges. Um, we just, at Vermont Sports Magazine, we just finished an article about the impacts of climate change and what uh, cross-country ski areas, for instance, are doing to try to combat that. And certainly it's going to be a challenge for our winter recreation, yet it's also an opportunity. And we are seeing more and more um, ski areas converting to mountain bike areas. We're seeing more and more, you know, trails being built for fat biking during the winter as well. So there's definitely are opportunities. However, I think it's something that we have to face and we have to be very cognizant of. And the ski business has brought millions and millions of people here to Vermont we're fortunate in that uh, we're seeing year-round recreation um, becoming more and more part of that kind of ski town uh, draw, and hopefully that will continue. Nick, what about you? Climate change. Yeah, I mean it's really the the seminal issue of our time and cuts across so many different areas. I think you know to build off what Lisa was saying. I, Part of as a as a summer recreation primary, you know, my day job is on a summer recreation activity. I think prior to this summer, somewhat naively thinking, you know, as we look at the slow boil, so to speak, of climate change, that what well, we would see longer summers, we'd see warmer winters, but not really thinking maybe as the, the direct threats and impacts. And we saw that climate change throws a lot of curveballs our way. One of which was uh, six almost six weeks of incessant rain this summer, which saw trails closed and saw businesses heavily impacted. And, and we saw in some ways it's a stalling out or a temporary shutdown of, of much of Vermont's outdoor economy. People didn't come because trails were closed or because businesses were unable to open due to flooding. And so part of the wake-up call from this past summer, I think for us, was that really needing to be smart and, and be thoughtful about the investments we make, not just to survive or, or pardon the pun, weather the storm of storms of climate change, but actually thrive in that future environment. So being really wise about where we're going to be in five or 10 years and how are we a state that can welcome people to come irrespective of the, you know, the, what's going to happen in terms of a warming, warming planet. So a lot of it is really thinking how, trying to get ahead. I feel like oftentimes we fight sort of most recent battle and, and now is the right moment, especially as we enter a period of, of more austerity uh, in the public budget without the federal dollars flowing um, that have in the past couple of years to be really smart about where we're putting our investments and how we can be a state that's thriving in the face of climate change in the next uh, five, 10 years and, and beyond. Lisa Lynn, you've seen this um, from a variety of, of viewpoints, a board member, a publisher of magazines, editor in chief of, uh, of executive editor of ski magazine. Boy, that's a, I mean, you, you have so many angles on this. Uh, and I noticed that, the Ski Areas Association uh, is an integral uh, and it seems to me that kind of unites the new of outdoor uh, recreation with the old of outdoor recreation. I mean, the Vermont Ski Areas go back to the you know late 50s, early 60s. What's that like having sort of the old guard and the new guard sort of mixing together? Uh, can you clarify what you mean by the new guard? <laughs> well, I, I I think of the Vermont mountain bike uh, industry as kind of the newcomers, a younger generation. 
And and the skier is, uh, you know, there's a lot of, I think of Press Smith who, you know, climbed to the top of Killington with his tent and slept on the top of that mountain uh, to, to, to develop that mountain. You know, there's, there must be some great synergies and not to mention great storytelling when you combine the, the, the experience of the skier is with relatively new outfits like mountain bikers. It's really, it's really interesting. I and mean, if you historically, ski areas were developed to bring tourism here. You know, it was uh, people in Woodstock who owned inns who put in some of the, you know, talked to local farmers and said, hey, let's put in a rope tow. You know, Stowe's Winter Carnival started, you know, started skiing here in the uh, Lamoille, Lamoille County as a way to bring tourism in. And that's only grown. In fact, we're seeing the biggest development in the state happening right now in Killington, um, where Great Gulf is building, you know, over 200 new units, a whole new base village um, at, at Killington's trail base. And they wouldn't be doing this. It's a huge investment. They would not be doing this unless they saw a solid future here. And I'll have to hand it to Killington. They have done a terrific job. They have 35 miles of downhill mountain bike trails. And these are not just gnarly hard trails. There are some very easy ones. They have lessons set up. And they're really looking at making this a four-season community. Wow. It's uh, it's fascinating. Um, so can I, last thing, can I jump in there yeah, too, Kevin? Please, please, Nick, jump in. Yeah, I just really like that at your comment around the sort of mashing of the new and the old guard. So one of the really neat things that Vermont has and in some ways leads the country on is an organization that I also represent, the Trails and Greenways Council, which brings together over 50 member organizations across outdoor recreation stewardship. So we have, quote unquote, the old guard, you know, like the Green Mountain Club, who's been around with the Long Trail for quite a long time, Catamount Trail Association, who's celebrating their 40th anniversary, and even Vimbo, we just celebrated our 25th. So we're not exactly a spring chicken anymore, but we are certainly in that, that newer vanguard. But, but the nice thing about, and then the really wonderful thing about the council is that we bring together those voices and perspectives to make sure we're understanding lessons from the past, incorporating history, um, but also balancing it and bringing in the perspective of those new and fast growing uh, recreational uses. So it's, it's something that I think is really neat in Vermont and, and exists in, a, in both in VOBA with the businesses in the ski areas, as, as Lisa was alluding to, and also in the um, stewardship organizations that help maintain um, our recreation infrastructure. Kevin, Lisa, I'd Lynn, also Nick, like to... Oh, Lisa, go ahead. You know, I, I think one thing that we should also stress is that while, you know, skiing and cycling, I mean, I actually went to my first uh, NEMBA Fest, I think in 1997 in Randolph, but uh, while well, skiing and certainly cycling have been around for a long time, what's new is that really starting in 2017, Governor Scott established Borac, the Vermont Outdoor Recreation Economic Collaborative, and he established VOBA, the Vermont Outdoor Business Alliance. At the same time, nationwide, we were really just starting to see a recognition that outdoor recreation was an industry. So I think one thing that we're looking for in this legislative session is ability to quantify that industry and to map it and to really think about what are the areas that we should invest in? What is the future economic impact? I think for a long time, we just thought of outdoor recreation more as a recreation, as something we all did for fun, as opposed to a true economic driver. 
what we're seeing now is it is a true economic driver, and it's an asset that Vermont has. It is really strong and really unique. Lisa Lynn is a board member of the Vermont Outdoor Business Alliance, and Nick Bennett is the executive director of the Vermont Mountain Bike Association. They will be at the State House on Friday, February 16th for uh, Outdoor Recreation Day. Thank you both for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Okay, and that is our show for today. My thanks to our guests, Pamela Walker, Bob Nay, Barry, Nick Bennett, and Lisa Lynn. Be sure to follow them all online. Read them. Follow their stuff. Uh, they're, it, they're all interesting and provocative folks. Remember to join me next week for our continuing observation of Black History Month. We've got a lot to do. You can hit me up on Twitter. Email me at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Our goal is always to illuminate and inform and have some fun along the way. Remember... You can stream the show live or listen later as a podcast at WDEVradio.com anytime, anywhere. Find me at KevinKEllis.com. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter and my podcast called Conflict of Interest. Our show is produced by me, engineered, made possible today by Steve Cormier and Danny McGivergan uh, and Greg Titus and all the folks at WDEV. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis. And we'll see you right back here next week for more discussion of politics and culture in Vermont and beyond, right here on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on the friendly pioneer, WDEV.